Welcome to Interchange. It's Tuesday, February 23rd, 2021. Today's show is Paul Robeson, the essential American. I ain't a reading man. I ain't a thinking man. I need a drinking man when I can get it to eat and drink. Naturally, in a show about Paul Robeson, all of our music comes from his body of work. Robeson was possibly the most widely known singer in the world at the height of his fame. And then, the U.S. government systematically targeted him for reputation assassination and economic impoverishment. I got an extra sense. I know what guys is like. I know what makes them click. We're listening to The Purest Kind of Guy, a song from Mark Blitzstein's 1941 opera, No for an Answer, which concerns the life and fate of members of a social club of Greek-American waiters, hotel workers, restaurant workers, chefs, laundresses, chambermaids, and taxi drivers who are all out of work. In 1958, Blitzstein was subpoenaed to appear before the U.S. House Committee on Un-American Activities, HUAC, and in a closed session, admitted he once belonged to the Communist Party, but then challenged the right of HUAC to question him at all, and refused to name names or cooperate any further. I will know that man's the purest kind of a guy. Today we'll hear from Robeson himself as he testifies before a Senate committee in 1948 as regards the Subversive Activities Control Act, co-sponsored by Richard Nixon. It's a kind of preview of Robeson's appearance before HUAC in 1956. The committee insisted Robeson define the American communist. He does just that, and contrasts it with American fascism. How he says hello, how he says goodbye, how he winks his eye will show the purest kind of a guy. Though he's easy going, you'll find that he knows his mind. That's the purest kind of a guy. We'll also revisit our 2016 interview with scholar and author Gerald Horn, who had just published a book with Pluto Press called Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. And we'll end the program with a Paul Robeson anecdote from the great filmmaker Charles Burnett about his own American experience in a Watts barbershop in Los Angeles in the late 1960s. But we begin today with graphic artist Sharon Rudolph, whose new book is a graphic biography of Paul Robeson called Ballad of an American, co-edited by Paul Buell and Law Ware. It's published by Rutgers University Press. Rudolph has worked often with Buell, the great historian of the left in America, on such edited compilations as The Wobblies, Bohemians, a Studs Terkel anthology working, a graphic biography of Emma Goldman, and a kind of hybrid biography of our 16th president called Lincoln for Beginners. Rudolph first gives us an account of her own struggles to make a career as an artist and a woman in a comics industry dominated by men. Take it from one who knows and don't make no mistake. And now, Paul Robeson, the essential American on Interchange on WFHB. So tonight is why we give a hello to the purest kind of a I went to art school in New York City in the late 60s to Cooper Union, which is a all-scholarship school. So it meant a lot to me to be 
independent of my family and not have to worry about money for school. But I also expected that there would be lots of diversity in both class and race of people that went to an all scholarship school. Um, it was mostly Jews and Italians, that generation of immigrants, people that were the more recent immigrants or in more straightened circumstances didn't want to send their kids to art school, even if it was free. And that was the height of like minimal art and black canvases and steel cubes and everything. And it wasn't what I wanted at all. It wasn't very satisfying. I didn't know what I wanted. And graduating, I graduated with pretty good grades, but graduating from college was actually one of the most depressing experiences of my life because then what do I do with this impulse to be an artist? And what really saved me was being asked to do political art. Um, I had gone to Madison, Wisconsin with my then husband, who was a graduate student. And I guess people knew I was an artist in the neighborhood and they, um, talked me into doing posters to get people out of jail and uh, flyers for demonstrations. And all of a sudden, I found all the things I'd been learning my whole life. There actually were people that wanted to see them. There actually was a way to be useful with them. And it was it really saved me as an artist and a person. And then uh, and I helped start an underground newspaper there. I was the art department. I didn't have much to do with anything else. I was the one man art department of takeover in the early 70s. And then when that fell apart, I went to San Francisco and worked in the underground newspaper. Um, good times. And that's where Trina Robbins found me when she wanted to have an all women's comic, the, the first women's comic and um, recruited me to do that. And the rest is uh, little known history, but it's, it's my career such as it is. And uh, Paul Bull stumbled on me when he was putting together an IWW graphic book. I guess he already knew about my work with Trina and uh, was familiar with it. And I've done a lot of work with Paul and it's always very satisfying. I've done more commercial work and, um, other work for women's comics and related projects and other underground co comics, you know, insect fear, bizarre sex, et cetera, et cetera. But the stuff I do for Paul has really been the essence of whatever gifts I have, the right use for them, uh, the combination of words and images to put across my own deepest beliefs. And um, I was in my 70s when I started working on the Paul Robson book. Paul Bull sent me a message that he had, that, that Rutgers University and part of the anniversary of 100th anniversary of Paul Robeson graduating in 1919, wanted to do a graphic novel. And, uh, he had picked me over some more stellar artists because I was, um, I was an unreconstructed old lefty that refused to let myself be convinced by any currently fashionable ideas. And I drew pretty good. So I, I was, I could get the Paul Robeson book. And I immediately was so thrilled at the possibility that I, I just sunk my teeth in it and said, don't let anybody else do it. I really want to do this. This is the history of me and Paul working together. So he started out wanting to do a script every page. Tell me what was in every page anyways. And I felt, well, even if I have to use his script, and even if I have to draw stick figures, it's still a great honor and privilege to do something about Paul Robeson. And, and, uh, he got so bogged down that I started coming up with my own ideas. And one of my first ideas, I went too far in the overly creative direction. I thought, I'll set the whole book during a performance of Othello, and I'll use lines, phrases from Shakespeare to reflect on different episodes in Paul's life. So I went through Othello with a, with a fine-tooth comb, and no, it just wouldn't work at all. So I just sat down and started writing. And... um and I got the idea I wanted it to be a ballad. I originally wanted to call it the Ballad of Paul Robeson, but it later got called Ballad of an American by the people at Rutgers U Press. And I think that's even better because of the, the, red, the reference to Ballad of Americans, which was one of his most famous and popular performances and recordings. But I wanted it to be a ballad in the sense that the way a ballad 
is never half-hearted. It never says, on the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. The hero of a ballad gets to be a hero, and the, the author of a ballad gets to wear their heart on their sleeve. And that was the way I wanted to do the book. I, I know I don't always live up to that. I have to stick in a lot of history and politics and, you know, shoveling in stuff in the background so people can understand what was happening at the time. But at its heart, it is meant to be a ballad. And that gave me the right to simplify and, and to leave out things that would have left unnecessary shadows on the, the arc of, of Paul Robeson's accomplishments. And we, we had a, a co-editor for Paul, Lawrence Ware, who's a, a professor of Africana studies and an esteemed black cultural critic who writes for the New York Times. And he was supposed to tell me, you know, whether I was making mistakes, but his immortal words at that point working with Paul with, were, uh, let her run with that. And uh, I would get up at four in the morning and be doing my research and preparing my materials. And I, I just felt like I was running, running across some field in the early morning with my hair that is no longer so thick, but, but in my imaginary running with it, you know, still long, thick hair waving in the wind. Um, I had all that to buoy me up and I had all that, you know, to be a responsibility too, to bring whatever I still had to give to the project. Would my eyes stay clear long enough? Would my hands stay steady long enough? Would my back stay strong long enough? I feel like I pulled off what I wanted to do. So that's that's nice to do that once in your life, especially at a time you think you may be past your best work. So I still, I'm still i still sort of in a little bit of a glow at having accomplished what I feel I accomplished with it. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about athlete, actor, singer, international celebrity, and activist, Paul Robeson. We're speaking with Sharon Rudall about her new book, Ballad of an American, a graphic biography of Paul Robeson, published by Rutgers University Press. being a woman in in the 50s and 60s and not having a place to go or being expected to go in one particular place, you know, to be a mother uh, and a wife for the most part. And having gone to college and wanting to be an artist and having no outlet or having the outlets be so narrow that you have to struggle to find out where they are. And I think I heard you say something to this effect. Well, I actually have become more of a feminist just recently. I think at the height of uh, second wave feminism, I actually took more of the point of view of, of um, women suffragettes that thought it was an, more overwhelming for black men to have the, the, the um, suffrage to be able to vote than for them to press for their own equality. You know, that the, the more general political themes of my young adulthood seemed even more important than women's equality. And and looking back, I, I remember more just how, I mean, when I was a girl, women couldn't own property. They couldn't, they couldn't have credit in their own names. Um, when I went to college, I, my painting teacher said he would take me as, a, that I was the best student and that he would take me as his apprentice, but he couldn't take a woman because she would just get married. Um, when I looked into the possibility of going to graduate school, women weren't accepted in graduate school in art at that time. Women weren't accepted in veterinary school. I mean, how weird is that? Everybody knows the people that take home sick birds and heal them are women. But, you know, we were just, we were really repressed and blotted out. I have to say, as a Jew also, you know, I grew up in almost complete segregation without thinking it was anything to be concerned about. I got caught up in the civil rights movement when I was living in a completely segregated, for Jews community, when Jews couldn't live many places in, in Maryland and Virginia, when the school that Obama's daughters went to didn't accept Jews at that time, when it was a big deal that there was a place where Jews could play tennis 
and, and golf because none of the other places had ever let them, let them enter before, you know, and I just accepted all that looking back on it. You know, did that influence me to be in civil rights? I mean, I think I put other people's struggles ahead of my own for a long time. And with this book, maybe I threw some of that off that I was finally old enough not to be embarrassed about taking my own work seriously and not to feel that I had to sort of bow and scrape and stand in the background and be happy for crumbs. It's still a little bit, you know, there have to be two men's names almost as big as mine on the cover for this to be published and distributed, you know, that's, that's still sexism. But I, I feel like I have made a lot of breakthroughs and that I've reconciled myself to what limitations like this. When you talk about the work at, uh, say, Takeover, or when you are just starting out, um, you're are you are you going with the flow in some sense? There, you're just like in a in a moment, and life is happening, and you're trying to be involved. Um, you know, do, is there a point in your career where you feel like you start to make choices? You know, make these artistic choices, or or are they as much just work? As anything else, you know, not necessarily artistic choices or projects, but work that you do that happens to be artistic as well. Well, one of the various places I'm working on the Robeson book, and I guess this was also really true with working with Emma Goldman, you know, he will say, he will say things that, you know, yes, that's just what I would say. And he says, uh, when I work in a socialist country, I work for free. When I work in a capitalist country, I'm asked for as much money as I can. So that pretty much sums up my attitude towards work. I won't do anything I'm, really embarrassed about doing or that I think is evil, but, you know, I'll, I'll do commercial illustration and I'll, I'll do things that come up. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just happy to do it. At the moment, I'm actually working on illustrations for a book about William Morris, though it is going to be about him as a socialist, but my work is completely decorative, which is really rare for me and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Um, you know, it's never easy to get work as an artist. It, it's the paying work. It's, it's, um, it's never going to be easy for anybody. Paul Bull's been a big help, but, uh, I'm, you're always scrabbling for the next, next gig. And that's just the way it is. Living in, living in LA and Hollywood, you know, a lot of people around you, whether they're in music or in theater or in the movies that the, the scrabbling around for the next gig and feeling alive when you have it is a, is a very common phenomenon. And, uh, I, that, that's just what it's like to be an artist. You take work when you can get it and, and you set your own limits on what you're willing to do. Working with Paul has been mostly stuff I was thrilled to do, but I've still been very open-minded about, you know, if he says he needs a story about such and such, you know, then just like an actor gets a job being such and such, then I, then I find what in it will allow me to do what I, what I need to do and what I want to do. Maybe that's, I think that's partly sexism too, though. You know, I think if I had been a, a boy, I wouldn't, I would have had more, been more egotistical and demanding about this is what I want to do. I want to direct rather than just being grateful for being given any kind of a job. But I'm not really sorry about that either because I think it's forced me to learn new things and expand myself and to be more humble in some ways about my work in a way that I think has probably contributed to it being better than it would have been if I'd been allowed to do completely just whatever I wanted to do. I mean, if I just did whatever I wanted to do, I would always just draw horses and dogs and ballerinas, for example. So obviously it's a good thing I was supposed to do everything. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what you could do with those those particular elements? Well, I actually have this running joke since I mentioned that to, to my younger son that I should someday get away with doing ballerinas on horses discuss communism. <laughs> I may yet pull that one off. I do still miss uh, the underground newspapers in that, you know, I get these ideas that are definitely something you'd stay up at night and do quickly and you'd like to see it in print the next day in an underground newspaper. Uh, in some ways, I'm not 
I haven't become a serious graphic artist and, and I still like to come up with goofy off, off the wall political ideas and, and do quick drawings about them. And I'd love to just distribute them in the streets the next day. So mm-hmm. I've never entirely outgrown that. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about athlete, actor, singer, international celebrity, and activist, Paul Robeson. We're speaking with Sharon Rudall about her new book, Ballad of an American, a graphic biography of Paul Robeson, published by Rutgers University Press. Do you have a, a favorite? Obviously, you like this book. You've spoken already about uh, your your own sense of accomplishment with it. Were there other uh, particular projects that you thought would you know might stand the test of time in a sense? One that I don't think is much known is Pablo and I collaborated on a Lincoln Lincoln for Beginners graphic. It would be a chapter of his writing history and then a chapter of my drawing graphics. And having grown up in Virginia and Maryland, where practically every other block was a a battlefield, you know, I had, a, and having been in the early civil rights movement, you know, I had a lot, a lot of knowledge and a lot of interest and a, a lot that I put into that one. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's been much seen, but I think we actually did quite an interesting and creative job. That was good practice for some of the difficult decisions I had to make with the Paul Robeson book, because mm-hmm. I had to deal with things like how did Lincoln deal with Native Americans? How did, what were Lincoln's alternate ideas for freeing the slaves? You know, to be able to use irony in comics to deal with some difficult subjects without denigrating a person whose whose work in general was so was so much with admiration. So I had I had difficult decisions to make there that I think taught me lessons I, I used in the Robeson book. Is there a particular panel or a particular pages in the in the in the Robeson book that you were like, yeah, I really nailed it. I really like the collage for fascism and I really like the collage for Harlem. And I like uh page hundred where he's being Otello. I think that worked out rather nicely. One of the ones I most felt I hadn't pulled off is when he's talking to the McCarthy Committee, Commission, whatever they were, and he's getting bigger and they're getting smaller. It seemed like such a good graphic idea, but I didn't feel that I drew well enough to really show it. And I was sort of disappointed, but I thought, well, you know, I don't, my deadline is already passed. You know, this will work. I can live with it. And then that was the thing that the uh, Democratic Socialists actually chose to use with, with their um, site and that Apparently it worked, and I didn't know it worked. I was gonna, I, I was gonna wait till later, but since we're kind of on this or looking at the book generally right now, I wanted to ask about. Um, there's a scene that you have a parallel uh, from page 18, where Paul is dealing with um, racism at in in his football uh, at Rutgers, right? He's and and he uh, at one point holds out his arms and and basically runs over everybody. And then I use that for the fight with fascists. Something you might not have noticed is that I have a couple of devices I try to use to sort of subconsciously unite things. What I call to myself the fatal moon when his father is escaping slavery through the swamp, there's a crescent moon with certain clouds. And you see that same moon when he escapes from fascism. And you see that same moon when he's about to uh, have his final breakdown. And I think there might be one or two other places. So that that fatal moon always indicates some some time when it's a real crisis of, of, of his life. Let me ask what kind of research you you did do. I know at the back of the book there's a few, you know, books for further reading. What what kind of research did you do for this? I read one book by his wife. I read his book, Here I Stand, Robeson's book. The main really fact book was du- Duberman, Professor Duberman, who's sort of the, the best known authority. I actually decided that was a little too gossipy after I'd already been through hundreds and hundreds of pages. He he does a lot about recording every famous person that was at a 
party that Robeson was at. And a lot of them aren't very famous anymore. So, but I, but it was helpful. There's a lot of information. I had great footnotes. I read a book that was specifically about Robeson's pan-Africanism, his interest in Africa and his studies about Africa. I just sort of read whatever I could get my hands on because I was really ignorant. I, I had heard Robeson's name as a child and I, I knew he was someone like Brecht and like a few other people. There's sort of a, for lefties, there's these sort of secular lefty saints, people whose names just sort of have a little glow around them. Or, well, I mean, you know, they're ones that, that stood in the, they did the right things and they thought the right things and they contributed art to the struggle and you just, there's a special honor that goes with it. And, and Robeson stands out as someone of that ilk, but I didn't actually know that much specifically about him at all until I began this project. In the book in particular, you walk through the, the biography in such a way that if nobody knows about Robeson, you kind of have to stop and scratch your head and wonder why you don't. He was successfully right. disappeared yeah. under McCarthy. Right. There was just all the celebration of Jackie Robinson. Right. Jackie Robinson only got into the majors because Robeson called together a meeting of the major league owners and, and made it happen. And then Jackie Robinson betrayed Robeson in front of the McCarthy committee in order to keep his job. So, you know, and Robeson was not mentioned at all and all the honoring of, of Jackie Robinson, which really bothered me. One of the important things of the book is that it shows the way in which this giant is crushed uh, because of what he says and believes in, you know, because of the changing world around him, because of anti-communism, uh, because of, you know, being a, a black man in the first place. It's easy to to dismiss him. I think he got it from all directions. You know, black organizations were afraid that if they supported Robeson in, in his time of difficulty, that they would be nailed as communists. But it's also true, right through the civil rights period, that Robeson was viewed as a, a black man who accommodated whites, a palatable to whites black man. And therefore, he was rejected by, by black radicals. He was he was rejected by all sides. It is a good history of how we don't quite know how to deal with the complications of our lives and the past and, and the politics and the ideologies, right? To try to follow someone who's really just wanting to be a person to succeed at what he can succeed at, you know, who is able to do so many things. I think that was very true of Wolfson's early life. Wolfson started out with that idea of the talented 10, you know, roughly a 10th of, of black people, um, became accomplished professionals, um, shared, uh, developed their talents, were educated, were able to move in the greater society, that that would lift up the race. And in the course of his life, it became clear that that wouldn't do it. I mean, maybe there would be some tokens who were accepted, but that life for most black people continued to be, you know, second class at best. Um, and I don't think he was. I think in the early part of his life, yes, he was looking to succeed as part of the talented town, always with a, a sense of himself as a black man. But I think after the... The, his real awakening as a radical, he really was uh, working for all people to, to uplift them and to move them from oppression. Uh, he started giving sermons for his, his for his father when he was only about 12. And I have him uh, quoting that line from the Gospels about uh, it, it is easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me say right here, I am a born and bred atheist, a total term atheist. But in the, I think in the Gospels is the seed of the kind, what is called communism in Paul Robeson. You know, it isn't communism in the political sense. It really is that sense of, uh, you know, and what I hear just lately, which really makes me think of that, is, is scientific experts saying about the, the, the coronavirus, the plague, uh, quote, no one is safe until everyone is safe. Th that's Paul's, that, that's Paul Robeson's communism. It's as simple and as heartfelt and religious as that. No one is free 
from fear of famine until everyone is free from fear of famine. No one is free from the dangers of illiteracy until everyone gets an education. No one faces a comfortable old age until everyone knows that they will have a secure old age. Paul didn't move with the times. Once he found the core of his beliefs, he just stuck with them. That's it. That's the idea. Old Abe Lincoln was thin and long. His heart was high and his faith was strong. But he hated oppression, he hated wrong. And he went down to his grave to free the This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Paul Robeson, The Essential American. This is Robeson singing Ballad for Americans, originally titled The Ballad for Uncle Sam. It was written for Sing for Your Supper, a federal theater project production that opened on April 24, 1939. The House Un-American Activities Committee claimed the content of the FTP's productions were supporting racial integration between black and white Americans, while also perpetuating an anti-capitalist communist agenda, and canceled funding for the project on June 30, 1939. The Ballad of Uncle Sam had been performed 60 times. On Sunday, November 5, 1939, on the 4.30 p.m. CBS radio show The Pursuit of Happiness, Paul Robeson sang... Ballad for Americans. Still nobody or anybody believed it. Everybody or anybody they doubted it. And they are doubting still, and I guess they always will. But who cares what they say when I am on my way? I'm everybody who's nobody. I'm the nobody who's everybody. What's your racket? What do you do for a living? Well, I'm an engineer, musician, street cleaner, carpenter, teacher. How about a farmer? Also. Office clerk? Yes, ma'am. Mechanic? That's right. Housewife? Certainly. Factory wiker? You said it. Uh huh. Absolutely. All of them I am the etc. and the and so forth that do the work. Now hold on here. What are you trying to give us? Are you an American? Am I an American? This is Doug Storm on Interchange on WFHB. Our show today, Paul Robeson, the essential American, highlights the kind of citizen we might all try to emulate. Paul Robeson. What we'll hear next is an edited selection of Robeson's Senate testimony from May 31, 1948, in opposition to the Subversive Activities Control Act, which aimed to criminalize Communist Party membership, a Republican bill co-sponsored by Richard Nixon. That act passed the House, but was defeated in the Senate. However, the content of that act was passed in 1950, 
as part of the McCarran Internal Security Act, sponsored by Nevada Democrat Pat McCarran. McCarran, a farmer and a rancher who served in the Senate for 21 years, was rabidly anti-communist and anti-Semitic. To keep the faith with those who went to be Mr. Olson here now? You read the bill, Mr. Olson. I have read the bill. Mr. Olson, what is an American communist? What do they stand for? They stand, as far as I can see, uh, for uh, complete equality of the Negro people in America, which I would like to see. So I'm interested in a party and in people who, who like in the Scottsboro case, who risk their lives, who make every effort of any possible kind to see that the Negro people secure their rights, so the forces of labor... Do you think that's what communism stands that's for in America? Stands to, it stands for me. Look, I say, I, that's my basic point. Well, that's what I want to My basic out. point is, that, wait, let's just wait a minute. Where, where did communism come from? It started against the background of the sufferings of the English people in the mills, in the great industrial revolution, well, but, which, which resulted in the slavery of my people in America, in the struggle as I would put it, of the few against the many in history. We had to have a, a civil war to see that somewhere people begin to get their rights. So the French Revolution. So I see history as a struggle of the great mass of people to some way get, a, get some fair return for their labor and a decent chance to live. Yes, now, now let's, let's, get down on America, let's get down to what the American communism Well, I'm saying to me, if this is a part of the struggle of people to get control of some of the wealth, instead of leaving it in the hands of the few. I see communism as nothing but an extension of, of great public ownership of the main means of resources, like the railroad workers said the other day, and the coal mines, if they're that important, Senator, to the United States, that so every time there's a national emergency, this is life or death to the, to the American people, doesn't it occur to you that instead of beating the workers on the head, that maybe this, the government should own the railroads and the coal mines? Well, this is, this is the whole struggle of which communism is a part. This is a part of the conceptions of the struggles of human beings for ages. And you can't move communism out anywhere in the world. Well, then, do I understand? So American communism is, you might as well say, is, is, what's an American socialist? Well, what's an American democrat? American you communism know, is you part know. of the Russian system. No, but do you know that American democratic principles stem directly from the French Revolution and our own revolution? No They're very revolutionary no ideas. About that. They are very revolutionary ideas. Right. In, in fascist Greece today, these are very revolutionary. Very revolutionary. Mr. Robinson, let, let's get down to okay. some of the facts in the bill. Now, I, I asked you the question you said you'd answer. Are you, an American, are you an American communist? Today, Senator Ferguson, that question has become the very basis of the struggle for American civil liberties. Nineteen or more, and many of the most, of, the, of, of the, some of the most brilliant and distinguished Americans are about to go to jail for failure to answer that question. And I'm going to join them if necessary. I refuse to answer All the right. question. You, you refuse to answer. I say that this whole hysteria, and the bill is a part of that hysteria, to use this not, not only to break, not, not to hurt communists, but really to break the civil liberties of every section of the American people. What's your definition of uh, fascist? I would say, to me, the essence of fascism it, in two things. Let's take the more obvious one first. Racial superiority. The kind of racial superiority that led a Hitler 
to wipe out six million Jewish people that, that can result any day in the lynching of Negro people in the South or other parts of America, the denial of their rights, the constant daily denial to any Negro in America, no matter how important whoever may be, of his essential human dignity, the thing which no other American would accept. This daily insult to his dignity as a human being. This is the essence of that. That's the now the second thing is no. But the most important thing, which is the reason this can be, is the power of the resources of a nation of, in the hands of the few, in the hands of the few, and the use of the state power, as Hitler or Mussolini or the police in Kansas City, to, to beat down any attempt to strive toward any kind of democratic rights or freedoms. Even though that be law enforcement? This is the very essence of the thing. We yeah. find always that law enforcement, in this case, is the protection of the property of the few people who are the potential of fascism. Uh, now, what is the essence of communism in America, in your opinion? My father was a slave. A few weeks ago, I'm standing in North Carolina on the very soil on which my father was a slave. Now, then I go into the whole history of our civilization, so to speak. 100 million Negroes from Africa torn to pieces and died in the slave trade. On our backs in America, the very primary wealth of America built on our backs. Cotton taken to the New England textile mills. What do we get from it today? Poverty, insult, inferior station in life, no opportunities. Communism is interested in seeing that those people who are oppressed, who suffer, that somewhere they represent those people in their struggle toward the people. I met my brother the other day, I gave him my right hand, and just as soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Paul Robeson, The Essential American. And here's another song from Robeson. This is Scandalize My Name. My sister the other day, I gave her my right hand, and just as soon as ever my back was turned, she to scandalize my name. Now do you call that a sister? No, no. You call that a sister? No, no. Call that a sister? No, no. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. In our next segment of Paul Robeson, The Essential American, we'll return to our 2016 interview with scholar and prolific author Gerald Horn, who had just published a book with Pluto Press called Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. Horn begins with a brief bio of Robeson. You call that religion? No, no. You call that religion? No, no. Call that religion? No, no. He was born in New Jersey in 1898, passes away in Philadelphia in 1976, all-American football player at Rutgers University, a professional football player for a short period of time, a lawyer trained at Columbia University Law School, and he somehow stumbles into acting and singing, and then from there into film acting. Like many black Americans before or since, he found it easier to attain 
fame and fortune abroad than in this country, in his case, London, where he lived during most of the 1920s and 1930s before World War II erupts in Europe in 1939 and he packs his bags and bundles up his family, moves across the Atlantic back to his homeland, the United States of America, helps the United States to mobilize against fascism during World War II. But after World War II, as is well known, the United States then turns on its former wartime ally in Moscow, and that marks the downward slide of Paul Robeson. It's always important, I think, to to try to keep those historical facts in mind. It's easy to forget that the past happened in the human mind as well as the American mind. Uh, one of the things that you continually hit on when you with with all your books is that there is a lot of history that has happened that that had to happen for things to be as they are today as well. And and Paul Robeson is is one of those individuals that we can kind of look through his life to see the world that did happen and how we got to where we are. Um, we, we talk about getting from one point to another. You mentioned that Robeson uh, found it easier or perhaps lucked into or fell into. I'm not sure which, which one it is, but became because of his, I guess, presence generally a, a stage actor. Um, was he a stage actor before he became a singer, uh, Gerald? Well, they more or less happen simultaneously. Hmm. So he he becomes uh, prominent uh, in in the theater and the the stage, and and really um, almost overnight becomes very successful. Is that uh, is that fair? That's a fair assessment. Uh, of course, his signature role is Shakespeare's Othello, and since we're marking the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death in 1616, it's appropriate to bring up the fact that. It was Robeson's Othello that many critics consider to be the signature Othello of the last few hundred years. Yeah, Othello is uh, is one of those uh, roles for Robeson that defined, uh, I guess in some sense, defined who he was as an actor to many people, uh, defined perhaps the role of the African-American in the culture at the time as well. When did he did he start that about, uh, was that 28 or is that is that about the right time, Gerald, where he, he or 30, 1930, where he where he first uh, performed the role and he he's kept with it throughout his career. Is that correct? Yes, uh, first in London in the time you mentioned, then on Broadway in the World War II era in the early 1940s, and then again in London uh, after he gets his passport back. Recall that during the height of the Red Scare, his passport is taken from him, which basically uh, circumscribes his oxygen supply in the sense that he can't go abroad to make a living after the United States basically closed the door to making a living in this country. Hmm. But on returning to London circa 1958, he revives his Othello there. So there are basically three signature Othello performances, London, Broadway, and then London again. Again, I think uh, as, as much as anything else, probably many people know Robeson through that role in Showboat in uh, the 1936 movie, but that was on stage first as well. But it's important to note, too, that when Old Man River was first released, Robeson released it as well, it, it contained the, the racial epithet, uh, the N-word was the, the um, in, in the song lyrics to begin with, and that moved through time even to use the word, uh, I think it, it passed into uh, quote-unquote darkies next, and then and then finally settled into the space it was. It's one of those things that we can track the course of Robeson's um, awakening in some sense through through song lyrics often. Well, there's a growing political consciousness of Paul Robeson. The turning point in terms of his growing political consciousness takes place in the early 1930s in Europe when he comes face to face with fascism in Berlin. And he has what almost becomes a violent encounter 
with jackbooted Gestapo forces mm. in Berlin. He moves on from there to Moscow, where he encounters an old friend from Harlem, a fellow black lawyer, William Patterson, who too turned his back upon wealth and glory for the less sure path of becoming a Communist Party leader. It was William Patterson, you may recall, who led the charge against the Scottsboro Nine, that is to say, the nine black youth who were slated for the electric chair for allegedly molesting two Euro-American women before Patterson and the international communist movement were able to launch a global campaign to put Jim Crow in the spotlight. I have maintained in previous books that that marked the beginning of the end for the hated, unlamented Jim Crow system, the system of apartheid in the United States. Encountering Patterson in Moscow, they had many elaborate conversations, and that helped to push Robeson to a declaration in favor of the socialist project, which he maintained to his dying days in 1976. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about the great Paul Robeson. We've talked with Sharon Rudall about her new graphic biography about Robeson, published by Rutgers University Press. And now we're listening to a selection from a 2016 Interchange interview with Gerald Horn, who had just published his biography, Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. When Robeson was oftentimes interrogated, which happened a number of times by U.S. congressional committees, he oftentimes maintained that he grew to consciousness in London. And if you wanted to understand his thinking, you had to understand London more so than Moscow. It was in London that he came into contact not only with advanced elements in the British Labour Party, it was also in London that he came into contact with some of the leading Marxist figures then on the world stage, Rajani Palm Dutt, Harry Pollitt, uh, Maurice Cornforth, and all of the rest. So I think you have to understand not only Patterson's influence, but Robeson's encounters in London as well, in order to get a real understanding of how he evolved ideologically and politically. I think you do some, say somewhere in the book, or Robinson says in your report on it, that uh, to, to be clear that communism was born in England rather than Russia. Well, what he's talking about, of course, are the rather atrocious factory conditions that obtained, for example, in Manchester in particular, where Frederick Engels in the mid-19th century, I'm speaking of Karl Marx's comrade, actually was employing labor and, of course, got the raw material for writing his classic on the condition of the working class in England from first-hand contact in Manchester itself. And it's no accident that both Engels and Marx were in exile in London, and that helped to them to develop their own particular political ideology, a political ideology that Paul Robeson happened to share. We skipped pretty far uh, ahead into his uh, political consciousness. I, I don't want to sort of gloss over the the ability of Paul Robeson to make so much happen in his world had as much to do with his success as a movie actor, as a singer, as a concert performer, if not for the success and wealth that Robeson himself enjoyed, it's unlikely that he would have been able to do as much as he did, fund as much as he did. In a sense, he became his own kind of angles, uh, the, the, the ability to, to fund a lot of the, the programs that were put into place at the time. And I don't want to skip over his, his, um, his popularity too, uh, uh, Gerald, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how popular uh, Paul Robeson was? 
At one point, he was viewed by far as the best-known black American on planet Earth. To a certain degree, he was one of the most well-known U.S. nationals on planet Earth. This came from the fact that he was selling countless numbers of record albums, that he was appearing on the silver screen worldwide. That is to say, he was perhaps the Denzel Washington of his era. And because of his stardom on the Grinard, his stardom as a football player, that was how he was first catapulted into to the public spotlight. And so Robeson was a figure of some notoriety. You mentioned his fundraising. I should also mention that he raised money for decolonization of Africa campaigns, not least through a vehicle that he helped to create, the Council on African Affairs, which he founded in 1937, was run out of business by the United States government in the mid-1950s, but was probably the premier organization crusading against South African apartheid, crusading against British colonialism, French colonialism, Portuguese colonialism in Africa. And this, I argue in the book, as much as anything else, helped to make him somewhat radioactive in Washington, because Washington felt at one point that anti-colonial efforts were just a cover for pro-communist efforts. And when they espied Paul Robeson leading these efforts, given his well-known sympathy for communists like William Patterson, this helped to solidify and cement that particular idea. Uh, Gerald Horn, Robeson is America in many ways. Uh, Robeson was really strong in supporting the war, selling war bonds and such, uh, believing that it was necessary to uh, defeat fascism first and foremost. Uh, we might say these tunes, or these songs, these lyrics are ironic at this point coming from Paul Robeson or what we know as, uh, as to what had happened to his life uh, after, after the turn against him. Keep in mind that it was not a foregone conclusion that black Americans in particular would sign on to the World War II project pursued by the United States, not least because in the years leading up to December 7th, 1941, Japan had made a conscious and intentional effort to carry favor amongst black Americans. Secondly, there was the negative example of World War One, where people had been told that if they were to make a blood sacrifice, then the milk and honey of enhanced human rights and civil rights would follow. What followed instead, of course, were pogroms and lynchings targeting the black American community. And so when Paul Robeson threw in his lot with Washington after December 7th, 1941, it was not easy to win over a skeptical black American audience, but that is precisely what he did. But as is well known, no good deed goes unpunished. And after World War II ended, the U.S. authorities turned on him with a vengeance. What's ironic is that the current line in the United States is that it's acceptable to be pro-Moscow between June 22nd, 1941, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, and September 1, 1945, when World War II concluded. But it's not acceptable to be pro-Moscow before that date of 1941 or after 1945. And likewise, it's deemed acceptable for the United States to ally with Moscow to subdue its antagonists, be it Berlin or Tokyo. But it's not acceptable for Paul Robeson to ally with Moscow to subdue the leaders of Jim Crow and U.S.-style apartheid. And so, therefore, after World War II concluded, he got into this face-to-face -face confrontation with U.S. President Harry S. Truman, 
with Robeson wagging his finger in Truman's face, denouncing the U.S. president for his lassitude in going after lynchers and those who oftentimes were committing bodily mayhem against black soldiers, oftentimes in uniform. Supposedly, according to contemporary accounts, Truman's face was turning purple as the blood rushed to his temples. After that particular episode, you saw that Robeson faced an intense form of persecution. That's when his passport was taken. That's when concert halls turned their backs against him. That's also when many of his concerts that were launched faced howling mobs with many of those in attendance determined and bent upon inflicting bodily mayhem on Robeson himself. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is about the great Paul Robeson. We've talked with Sharon Rudall about her new graphic biography about Robeson, published by Rutgers University Press. And now we're listening to a selection from a 2016 Interchange interview with Gerald Horn, who had just published his biography, Paul Robeson, The Artist as Revolutionary. Yeah, it's important to note, I think, too, that um, uh, Robeson was really just calling it like he saw it, right? In the sense that uh, the U.S. had taken the lead in the Nuremberg trials and he was uh, basically saying there's no way to not see this as a hypocritical act as as we continue to to lynch and uh, murder and uh, keep in economic deprivation uh, a, a massive amount of people in this country. Yes, and keep in mind as well that another turning point for Robeson comes in the spring of 1949 when at a speech at a peace conference in Paris, its words are interpreted as casting doubt on whether or not black Americans would join in a war against the former Soviet Union. Uh, That too was a turning point in his life because that tapped a very sensitive nerve in the U.S. political discourse. That is to say, going back to the colonial times when most Africans were enslaved, there was always this reigning fear that the Africans would engage in a slave revolt concomitant with a foreign invasion. And in other words, there was always a reigning fear that black Americans would not sign on to war crusades. And this was an understandable and justifiable fear given the kinds of atrocities that were routinely visited upon black Americans. And so when Robeson cast doubt, or seemingly cast doubt, I should say, on black Americans' ability or willingness to join in an upcoming uh, potential conflict against Moscow, all hell broke loose. You do point out in, in several of your books the role of trying to secure that that international um, I, I, I don't know that we call it nec- necessarily need to call it threat, but the idea that the, the African American community does seek out that relationship again to leverage, uh, places that, sh- that surely have, uh, less to be, I guess, ashamed of in some sense or less to be held to account for in terms of their race relations. Well, the U.S. authorities were basically in a pickle. On the one hand, they did not want to go against the leaders and the popularizers of Jim Crow and U.S.-style apartheid, many of whom were in the Democratic Party, which, keep in mind, uh, controlled the White House between 1932 and 1952. They did not want to contradict these tenets of Jim Crow by necessarily being vigorous and calling for equality. But at the same time, they had to then run the risk 
that black Americans subjected to Jim Crow would then look abroad for sustenance and for political support, be it listening to the siren song of Tokyo between the beginning of the 20th century up until 1945, or for that matter, being attracted to the International Socialist Project to a greater or lesser degree, you could say it attracted the cream of the crop of black America. Speaking of Langston Hughes, the well-known poet, playwright, and writer, for a time, Richard Wright, the leading black novelist, Shirley Graham Du Bois, not only the spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois, who himself joined the Communist Party in 1961, but Shirley Graham Du Bois was probably the leading black American woman writer of the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, perhaps up until the 70s uh, when she passed away. So it was this pincer move, that is to say, on the one hand, the United States was trying to charge the Soviet Union with human rights violations, but at the same time, looking the other way with regard to human rights violations against black Americans and other peoples of color. This helped to create a dynamic that caused the retreat of Jim Crow, but the price of the ticket was the marginalizing of figures like Paul Robeson, that is to say, marginalizing a man who was once called the tallest tree in our forest, marginalizing a man who embodied the socialist project, and therefore this left the black American community to a certain ex extent ideologically bereft. Paul Robeson felt freer in Canada, and he felt freer in London than he did in his own homeland. Now, there's a disjuncture in the United States because there, on the one hand, there's this rhetoric about this grand revolution of 1776 that meant so much for humanity and humankind. And yet you have people like Robeson, black people in particular, whose roots in North America stretch back decades, if not centuries. And yet they are made to feel uncomfortable in this so-called revolutionary republic. Yeah, he also points out uh, that a, a large part of his attraction to Russia was that they he he says uh, that there was absolutely no race consciousness, color consciousness in in Russia. Well, what's interesting, there's an op-ed in the New York Times today about Algeria, and it points out how in Algeria you're more likely to be discriminated against on the basis of religion than quote race unquote. Hmm. And oftentimes that's very hard for people in the United States to understand. They think that race will will automatically trump everything else. And so when Robeson says that he feels more comfortable in Moscow or London, people in the United States find that hard to believe since Robeson was a dark-skinned man. But what they need to understand is that this obsession with anti-black racism is not necessarily a universal quality shared by every nation on planet Earth. It happens to be a peculiar obsession of the United States of America. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. The things that your preacher is liable to teach you, it ain't necessarily so. Here's another song by Paul Robeson. This is It Ain't Necessarily So. A little David was small, but a he fought big Goliath, who lay low and dieth. Little David was small, but oh my. Jonah, he lived in the whale. Now he made his home in that fish's abdomen. Yes, Jonah, he lived in the whale. 
A little Moses was found in the stream. A little Moses was found in the stream. He floated on water till old Pharaoh's daughter, she fished him, she said, from that stream. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. To end today's show on Paul Robeson, we'll excerpt a Robeson anecdote from an Interchange conversation with the great filmmaker Charles Burnett about his own American experience in a Watts barbershop in Los Angeles in the late 1960s. Methuselah lived 900 years Methuselah lived 900 years But who calls that living When no one will give in To no man what's 900 years I was a fan of Paul Robeson And I used to get my hair cut Right in the heart of Watts, you might say And uh, with these old guys that would cut hair And I enjoyed going to the barbershop you know, just to get in an argument with these guys. And uh, and uh, they were off the South, you know, and they talked politics and everything. And so I remember one day when it was Paul Robinson's birthday, celebrating his whatever, uh, I thought they would be excited about Paul Robinson, but they weren't. I mean, you know, they were, like, really conservative in their way of thinking, in a sense. They were saying that, that, that they looked at him as not, like, a true American. He talked against his country right, and all this. Right. What? <laughs> they got into this bloody argument, you know, about race, about all this stuff, about South, and, uh, and it, it, you know, what Paul Robeson represented to, to me and all, all these young folks, you know. And uh, and and so we got to a point where uh, I, I thought that if anyone would be for any kind of rebellion or revolution, it would be these guys. No, they were just the opposite. And so uh, I was disappointed in that. You know? yeah. it was a, uh, but it was a learning lesson. I was disappointed. But anyway, so we got to the end of the argument, and uh, and before I sort of stormed out, you know, the guy, one of the guys said, I'll, I'll give you a ticket to Russia, I'll give you a ticket to Russia if you promise not to come back. <laughs> the friends that I have found, the folks beyond the railroad, and the people all around, the worker and the farmer, the sailor on the sea, the men who built this country, that's America to me. And that's our show. We'll close with one more from Paul Robeson, The House I Live In. Thanks to Sharon Rudolph, Gerald Horn, Charles Burnett, and Paul Robeson for lending us their voices today. Again, Rudolph's Ballad of an American, a graphic biography of Paul Robeson, is out now from Rutgers University Press. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. The house I live in, my neighbors white and black. The people who just came here are from generations back. The town hall and the soapbox, the torch of liberty. A home for all God's children, that's America.